The following is read by Jeff Epstein, Citizens Media TV on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube, and People Conversations on SoundCloud. A reading of the paper, Functional Finance and the Federal Debt, by Abba P. Lerner, from the Selected Economic Writings of Abba P. Lerner. This paper was written in 1943 and is 14 pages long. Apart from the necessity of winning the war, there is no task facing society today so important as the elimination of economic insecurity. If we fail in this after the war, the present threat to democratic civilization will arise again. It is therefore essential that we grapple with this problem, even if it involves a little careful thinking, and even if the thought proves somewhat contrary to our preconceptions. In recent years, the principles by which appropriate government action can maintain prosperity have been adequately developed, but the proponents of the new principles have either not seen their full logical implications or shown an over-solicitousness which caused them to try to save the public from the necessary mental exercise. This has worked like a boomerang. Many of our publicly-minded men who have come to see that deficit spending actually works still oppose the permanent maintenance of prosperity because in their failure to see how it all works, they are easily frightened by fairy tales of terrible consequences. Section 1 As formulated by Alvin Hansen and others who have developed and popularized it, the new fiscal theory which was first put forward in substantially complete form by J. M. Keynes in England, sounds a little less novel and absurd to our preconditioned ears than it does when presented in its simplest and most logical form, with all the unorthodox implications expressly formulated. In some cases, the less shocking formulation may be intentional, as a tactical device to gain serious attention. In other cases, it is due not to a desire to sugar the pill, but to the fact that the writers themselves have not seen all the unorthodox implications, perhaps subconsciously compromising with their own orthodox education. But now it is these compromises that are under fire. Now more than ever, it is necessary to pose the theorems in the purest form. Only thus will it be possible to clear the air of objections which really are concerned with awkwardness that appear only when the new theory is forced into the old theoretical framework. Fundamentally, the new theory, like almost every important discovery, is extremely simple. Indeed, it is this simplicity which makes the public suspect it as too slick. Even learned professors who find it hard to abandon ingrained habits of thought have complained that it is, quote, merely logical, when they could find no flaw in it. What progress the theory has made so far has been achieved not by simplifying it, but by dressing it up to make it more complicated and accompanying the presentation with impressive but irrelevant statistics. The central idea is that government fiscal policy, its spending and taxing, its borrowing and repayment of loans, its issue of new money and its withdrawal of money, shall all be undertaken with an eye only to the results of these actions on the economy and not to any established traditional doctrine about what is sound or unsound. This principle of judging only by effects has been applied in many other fields of human activity where it is known as the method of science as opposed to scholasticism.
the principle of judging fiscal measures by the way they work or function in the economy, we may call functional finance. The first financial responsibility of the government, since nobody else can undertake that responsibility, is to keep the total rate of spending in the country on goods and services neither greater nor less than that rate which at the current prices would buy all the goods that it is possible to produce. If total spending is allowed to go above this, there will be inflation, and if it is allowed to go below this, there will be unemployment. The government can increase total spending by spending more itself or by reducing taxes so that the taxpayers have more money left to spend. It can reduce total spending by spending less itself or by raising taxes so that taxpayers have less money left to spend. By these means, total spending can be kept at the required level, where it will be enough to buy the goods that can be produced by all who want to work, and yet not enough to bring inflation by demanding at current prices more than can be produced. In applying this first law of functional finance, the government may find itself collecting more in taxes than it is spending, or spending more than it collects in taxes. In the former case, it can keep the difference in its coffers or use it to repay some of the national debt. And in the latter case, it would have to provide the difference by borrowing or printing money. In neither case should the government feel that there is anything especially good or bad about this result. It should merely concentrate on keeping the total rate of spending neither too small nor too great, in this way preventing both unemployment and inflation. An interesting and to many a shocking corollary is that taxing is never to be undertaken merely because the government needs to make money payments. According to the principles of functional finance, taxation must be judged only by its effects. Its main effects are two. The taxpayer has less money left to spend and the government has more money. The second effect can be brought about so much more easily by printing the money that only the first effect is significant. Taxation should therefore be imposed only when it is desirable that the taxpayers shall have less money to spend, for example when they would otherwise spend enough to bring about inflation. The second law of functional finance is that the government should borrow money only if it is desirable that the public should have less money and more government bonds, for these are the effects of government borrowing. This might be desirable if otherwise the rate of interest would be reduced too low by attempts on the part of the holders of the cash to lend it out, and induce too much investment, thus bringing about inflation. Conversely, the government should lend money or repay some of its debt, only if it is desirable to increase the money or to reduce the quantity of government bonds in the hands of the public. When taxing, spending, borrowing, and lending, or repaying loans are governed by the principles of functional finance, any excess of money outlays over money revenues, if it cannot be met out of money hoards, must be met by printing new money, and any excess of revenues over outlays can be destroyed or used to replenish hoards. The almost instinctive revulsion that we have to the idea of printing money, and the tendency to identify it with inflation, can be overcome if we calm ourselves and take note that this printing does not affect the amount of money spent. 
That is regulated by the first law of functional finance, which refers especially to inflation and unemployment. The printing of money takes place only when it is needed to implement functional finance in spending or lending, or repayment of government debt. Note 1. Borrowing money from the banks on conditions which permit the banks to issue new credit money based on their additional holdings of government securities must be considered for our purpose as printing money. In effect, the banks are acting as agents for the governments in issuing credit or bank money. Continuing, in brief, functional finance rejects completely the traditional doctrines of, quote, sound finance and the principle of trying to balance the budget over a solar year or any other arbitrary period. In place, it prescribes, first, the adjustment of total spending by everybody in the economy, including the government, in order to eliminate both unemployment and inflation using government spending when total spending is too low and taxation when total spending is too high. Second, the adjustment of public holdings of money and of government bonds by government borrowing or debt repayment in order to achieve the rate of interest which results in the most desirable level of investment. And third, the printing, hoarding, or destruction of money as needed for carrying out the first two parts of the program. Section 2. In judging the formulations of economists on this subject, it is difficult to distinguish between tact in smoothing over the more staggering statements of functional finance and insufficient clarity on the part of those who do not fully realize the extremes that are implied in their relatively orthodox formulations. First there were the pump primers, whose argument was that the government nearly had to get things going and then the economy could go on by itself. There are very few pump primers left now. A formula similar in some ways to pump priming was developed by Scandinavian economists in terms of a series of cyclical, capital, and other special budgets which had to be balanced not annually, but over longer periods. Like the pump priming formula, it fails because there is no reason for supposing that the spending and taxation policy, which maintains full employment and prevents inflation, must necessarily balance the budget over a decade any more than during a year or at the end of each fortnight. As soon as this was seen, the lack of any guarantee that the maintenance of prosperity would permit the budget to be balanced even over longer periods, it had to be recognized that the result might be a continually increasing national debt if the additional spending were provided by the government's borrowing of the money and not by printing the excess of its spending over its tax revenues. At this point, two things should have been made clear. First, that this possibility presented no danger to society, no matter what unimagined heights the national debt might reach, so long as functional finance maintains the proper level of total demand for current output. And second, though this is much less important, that there is an automatic tendency for the budget to be balanced in the long run as a result of the application of functional finance, even though there is no place for the principle of balancing the budget. No matter how much interest has to be paid on the debt, taxation must not be applied unless it is necessary to keep spending down to prevent inflation. The interest can be paid by borrowing still more. 
As long as the public is willing to keep on lending to the government, there is no difficulty, no matter how many zeros are added to the national debt. If the public becomes reluctant to keep on lending, it must either hoard the money or spend it. If the public hoards, the government can print the money to meet its interest and other obligations, and the only effect is that the public holds government currency instead of government bonds, and the government has saved the trouble of making interest payments. If the public spends, this will increase the rate of total spending so that it will not be necessary for the government to borrow for this purpose. And if the rate of spending becomes too great, then is the time to tax to prevent inflation. The proceeds can then be used to pay interest and repay government debt. In every case, functional finance provides a simple, quasi-automatic response. But either this was not seen clearly or it was considered too shocking or too logical to be told to the public. Instead, it was argued, for example by Alvin Hansen, that as long as there is a reasonable ratio between national income and debt, the interest payment on the national debt can easily come from taxes paid out of the increased national income created by the deficit financing. This unnecessary appeasement opened the way to an extremely effective opposition to functional finance. Even men who have a clear understanding of the mechanism whereby government spending in times of depression can increase the national income by several times the amount laid out by the government, and who understand perfectly well that the national debt, when it is not owed to other nations, is not a burden on the nation, in the same way as an individual's debt to other individuals is a burden on the individual have come out strongly against, quote, deficit spending. It has been argued that, quote, it would be impossible to devise a program better adapted to the systematic undermining of the private enterprise system and the hastening of the final catastrophe than, quote, deficit spending, close quote. Note two, an excellent example of this is the persuasive article by John T. Flynn in Harper's Magazine for July 1942. Continuing. These objections are based on the recognition that, although every dollar spent by the government may create several dollars of income in the course of the next year or two, the effects then disappear. From this it follows that, if the national income is to be maintained at a high level, the government has to keep up its contribution to spending for as long as private spending is insufficient by itself to provide full employment. This might mean an indefinite continuation of government support to spending, though not necessarily at an increasing rate, and if, as the appeasement formulation suggests, all this spending comes out of borrowing, the debt will keep on growing until it is no longer in a quote, reasonable ratio to income. This leads to the crux of the argument. If the interest on the debt must be raised out of taxes, again an assumption that is unchallenged by the appeasement formulation, it will in time constitute an important fraction of the national income. The very high income tax necessary to collect this amount of money and pay it to the holders of government bonds will discourage risky private investment by so reducing the net return on it that the investor is not compensated for the risk of losing his capital. This will make it necessary for the government to undertake still more deficit financing to keep up the level of income and employment. Still heavier taxation will then be necessary to pay the interest on the growing debt, 
until the burden of taxation is so crushing that private investment becomes unprofitable and the private enterprise economy collapses. Private firms and corporations will all be bankrupted by the taxes and the government will have to take over all industry. This argument is not new. The identical calamities, although they are now receiving much more attention than usual, were promised when the first income tax law of one penny in the pound was proposed. All this only makes it more important to evaluate the significance of the argument. Section 3. There are four major errors in the argument against deficit spending. Four reasons why its apparent conclusiveness is only illusory.